Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both in person and online. In person, we have our kids' church. Uh, We pray together. We worship together through song, and we gather together to study the Word of God. And then throughout the week, we spread out in our small groups that meet at different times and different places, both online and in person, throughout the week. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. This morning we're going to be talking about a touchy subject. It's a subject that affects a lot of people. It's a subject that many people have experienced. Uh, We're going to be talking about divorce this morning. It's an issue that is prevalent in our society, and it's an issue that's divisive among Christians because there is not agreement among Christians about uh, how divorce works for the Christian and how divorce works uh, in the church. I want to say this. Uh, First of all, God loves you. And if you have been divorced, we've said this before, but we will continue to say it again, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce does not hold you back from moving forward in the fullness of life that God wants for you. It's painful, it is traumatic, it is terrible for families, but it is not the unpardonable sin. Now, I'm going to say things, and I'm going to be try, try to be as clear as I possibly can, but you have any questions, any concerns, any comments, please reach out. Email adam at faithonhill.com. Maybe I didn't explain something clearly. Uh, maybe I said something, and you're like, wait a minute. Did you mean to say that? Is that what you really mean? And we can talk it out. We can work through it. If you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, as we hear what Jesus has to say on the subject of divorce. Matthew chapter 19 says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, that's all of the teachings that he's just gone through on uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom, dealing with sin in the church, having mercy towards one another. He left the Galilee and went into the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Now, Matthew doesn't make a big deal about this, but this is the point in time in which Jesus leaves the Galilee to head to Jerusalem to be crucified. That's important to note. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any or every reason? Well, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of the Creator, that at the beginning, excuse me, the Creator made them feel, I can talk, the Creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and they shall no longer be two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then did they ask, uh, why then they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife with a certificate of divorce and send her away? I'm going to point out, by the way, that Moses didn't command that they do this. But in the law that Moses established for the people, there were provisions for divorce. It wasn't like Moses said, you better do this, just to be clear on that. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it is not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. I wonder if any of them were feeling guilty at that point. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. 
And Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. No one, uh, the one who can accept this, should accept it. This is God's word. Let's get through it. Well, I don't know about you, but I often come home and uh, check in with the family on how the day was. And quite honestly, a lot of the times I work from home, so uh, Angie comes home from work and she'll say, what did you do today? And I'll say, how did your day go? And we're texting throughout the day, so I have a general sense of if it's a good day or a bad day. But we do kind of the big download together at the end of our work days. And so earlier this week, Angie came home and she said, oh, what'd you do today? And I said, well, I read every Bible verse there is on divorce. And she looked at me like, excuse me? And I realized, oh, that came out bad. And I need to <laughs> explain. And I said, no, no, it's, it's for studying. I'm Matthew 19 this weekend. I apologize. That came out weird. Uh, I have no interest in getting divorced from my wife. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I explained what was going on. And she's like, oh, okay, well, you just word that better next time. But I did. I read every Bible verse there is that I could find. Maybe there's one I missed somewhere, but near as I can tell, I read every Bible verse about divorce. But I want to start off by talking about eunuchs. And you might say, wait, what? I mean, maybe you read with us the end of, of the reading and you said, what's a eunuch? Why is Jesus talking about that? I thought he was talking about divorce. And now you're starting with it? Well, let's be adults about this. A eunuch is a man who was castrated. He had his testicles removed at some point early in his life. And honestly, this was interesting reading. I've been prepping for this uh, sermon for a couple weeks now. And eunuchs were actually a common place in human society up until very recently. Uh, they go back all the way to the beginning of written human history. Uh, the Sumerians in their text speak of them, and they were basically the first people to start writing human history down. And so you can assume that the practice actually went earlier than them, but we only can say for sure that it went back uh, about four or 5,000 years ago to the Sumerians. It only ended less than 100 years ago. Think about that, less than 100 years ago. The last kingdom that had formal established place in society for eunuchs stopped 98 years ago, 1924, when the last Chinese emperor had to flee the forbidden city in Beijing. And it's not unreasonable to think that for a short time afterwards that places in the world still had some sort of practice of this. The last confirmed Chinese eunuch from the emperor died in 1996. It wasn't that long ago. And the Chinese were just maybe the last, but it, they weren't far behind, you know, far ahead of the, the ones like the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, which ruled from Turkey, but ruled large parts of Eastern Europe and the Middle East, fell after World War I, but they heavily employed the use of eunuchs in their courts. Places in East Africa until the 1800s and places in Southeast Asia until about the late 1800s also heavily employed eunuchs in their royal or official or bureaucratic life. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of different reasons why eunuchs were employed. Uh, they were employed uh, 
they could be trusted near the king's wife and kids. Hey, he's not going to fool around with the king's wives or the king's daughters or the king's son. You know, they're, 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 you're, you're kind of considered safe. Also, since they don't have in-laws or they don't have descendants in a very hereditary heavy society, uh, you don't have the same threat to power. If a eunuch had authority, they didn't become a power base built around different families and their heirs giving them responsibility and all that kind of stuff, palace intrigue that happens. So they were considered safe. They were stopped way before all this in in Europe, but that has a lot more to do with uh, how power was disseminated among the nobility in Europe. So so this idea that we were somehow more sophisticated, I think it was just more out of not, not a necessity. Uh, although I would also say the Christian influence in Europe uh, and in you know, parts of North Africa and, and things like that uh, affected these things. But the reason that I want to highlight eunuchs first isn't about an interesting history lesson. It's really about this idea that Jesus is speaking about things that would have been a common contextual idea a common knowledge idea. Nobody would have had to have been explained what a eunuch was or what their function in society was. But less than a hundred years later, after the last kingdom that employed eunuchs fell, we have almost no concept. We have, we have no realization how close we are in terms of human history to this practice what I'm getting at is that Jesus is speaking about a context that is different from ours. And why that matters is this. Sometimes, especially on cultural issues, Christians will take a verse or a part of the Bible and then they will project 2022 or whatever year it is, 1996 or 1956 or whatever, and they will take our time and then project it onto Bible times. Not realizing that maybe Jesus or one of the apostles is giving a teaching or an instruction that was relevant to a very specific moment or place or context. There's people that just, we can't assume that the Bible automatically fits in with our understanding of the world. Now, there are other people that might hear me say that and say, that's right. Why is that? Because they want to ignore huge parts of the Bible and just say, oh, that was just for a different time in a different place. Okay, let's say that's true. What about the principle? What about the heart behind it? Let's say that they were giving an instruction, a teaching that was true and appropriate for that specific moment, which by the way, by the way, a lot of times when people want to write off the Bible and say, well, that was just for a different time, you can never get them to admit then what they're saying is, is that something that they now don't want to believe or that they now find abhorrent would have been okay at a different time. That being said, what about the principle? What about the heart behind it? The main point that Jesus is trying to get at is not a teaching about eunuchs. The main point that he is getting at is a teaching about accepting his word. Jesus is saying, this is what God has said. This is what God has established. This is what God has created. And then he says, there are some people who are born eunuchs, some people who become eunuchs, and some people who choose to live like eunuchs, not become eunuchs, but choose to live like them for the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is that there, as I understand it, there are some people who just easily accept what God says. There are some people who 
really have to work through it. And for them, it's a sacrifice to change their life to live in the ways of the kingdom of heaven. I think that's the big principle that Jesus is getting to. When his disciples come to him and says, if this teaching is true, this is rough. He says, yeah, it's rough. And if you can accept it, then live by it. But understand that this is of the kingdom of heaven, right? So I don't expect the world who rejects Jesus to live in the ways of the kingdom of heaven. It would be better for you if you did, but I don't expect it. And I don't think Jesus does either. He's saying for those of us who are of the kingdom of heaven, this is the path for us to walk, but we choose to accept it or reject it. So, what do you do with divorce? Because there are many who have taught in the church and individually that Christians should never get divorced. Or they'll say, well, Jesus said here, no one should ever get divorced except for sexual immorality, which is adultery. So if, if your spouse cheats on you, then you can get divorced. But even then you shouldn't. That's what they'll say or imply or infer or whatever. And I've seen this. I know of people who have stayed in abusive relationships who have been cheated on again and again and again, and they have stayed because somebody told them. And it, it doesn't even necessarily the church. Like, maybe if they had gone to their pastor or the elders of their church, they would have been told, you know what? Get out of that situation. But it was a cultural thing, and the, uh, maybe the older women in the church were telling this young gal, like, you cannot leave your husband. It is God is against that. And they always quote Malachi, the prophet Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, where he says, God hates divorce. And it's true. But what God is saying in that verse, if you go to the, the writings of the prophet Malachi, he's saying God hates divorce. And the man who leaves his wife is doing violence to her. And God is against that. It's not a, a total prohibition because if Malachi was a total prohibition, Jesus says that there is a place for it. So what are the rules on divorce? Look, the goal is to have healthy, life-giving relationships over the long term. Whether it is in our relationships to each other as a church family, our relationships with our physical or biological family, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our cousins, our children, grandchildren, whatever, or with our spouses, our chosen family, those that we have chose to bind ourselves to out of love. The goal is healthy relationships, life-giving relationships over the long term. And here's why I say over the long term. I just saw on Facebook recently a couple celebrating a, a milestone anniversary, I think 15 years or something like that. It was, a, it was one of those ones that you mark a little more. But I know, it's not widely known, but I know that in the first six months of their marriage, there was an infidelity and there was other stuff going on. In that place and in that moment, the person who was wronged had grace and mercy and accountability. You know, the, the person who was unfaithful had to do some, do some work. They had to rebuild trust. They had to build in accountability. They had to deal with some other issues and substances that were going on in their lives that were, you know, kind of like comorbidities to the, the infidelity sin. But after that work was done, you know, if, if year, year one and year two were rough, 
the next 13 years have been beautiful. And over the long term, there was a healthy, life-giving relationship. But there are biblical reasons for divorce because I know another couple that in the first year of their marriage, there was infidelity. Within six months, the, the husband was cheating. The husband was abusing substances. I mean, heavy substances like cocaine and stuff like that. There was physical abuse, domestic violence. And she was out. And she is not in any sin at all. Now, would she say, would she say that it would have been better had her husband never done any of those things, or even though he, he cheated and he was abusing substances and he was getting violent, what if he had repented and there had been true repentance over a long period of time that could be demonstrated and it was safe to be with him? Wouldn't that have been better? Yes, but there wasn't. And so she left. I'm going to say this. I'm giving some examples, and I'm not giving examples of anyone that any person in our church or in our area would know. I am giving examples of people who live other parts of the country, other parts of the world, and who I know for a fact have no connection to our church community, okay? The reason I'm doing that is so I want to give you some real-life examples, but I also know that everything is unique and case-by-case. In the first example I gave, there was a beautiful story of healing, of repentance, of mercy, of redemption. In the second story, there is a tragic story of infidelity and abuse and addiction. But even there, there was grace and mercy and repentance as this godly woman, faced with a horrible situation, bravely got out of an abusive situation. And then a few years later, fell in love with a truly godly man and they have wonderful children and they love Jesus and there is a beautiful redemption story happening there. You see, there is a biblical reason for divorce and there is also a biblical necessity for grace and mercy. A biblical necessity for grace and mercy. For those of us who are on the outside, how can we show grace and mercy to those who are going through this time? And if you're on the inside of a relationship, how can we show grace and mercy to the other and see if Jesus can do a miraculous work of healing and restoration? Divorce is traumatic. The number one demographic of our church is educators. Educators know what an ACEs score is. An ACEs score is this kind of evaluation you can give to a child. And if they have enough uh, different things going on in their life, then they can be considered abused or neglected. Divorce is a traumatic event that affects an ACEs score. Divorce is bad. Even divorces where there is a reason, like, hey, oh my goodness, yeah, you should, you should get out of there. It's bad. It's n- divorce is never a beautiful thing. It's sometimes a necessary thing that requires a lot of grace and mercy from us towards them. But there are biblical reasons for divorce. Adultery, as Jesus just said. And there are those who say, well, that's it. That's the only reason. What's interesting, though, is that Matthew is not the only gospel that recounts this teaching. Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel both recount this teaching. And in both of their accounts of this teaching, Jesus doesn't include the immorality clause. He says that A man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they should be one flesh. And what 
is joined together, no one should separate. He doesn't give the clause. There's also this problem with this idea that Jesus said this, and that's all that we're going to take. It's this red letter idea. Maybe your Bible has the words of Jesus in red letters. That's called a red letter edition. And I think there's a lot of value in that. When, when you're reading through the Gospels or you're reading through the book of the Revelation and Jesus speaks directly and the red letters highlight that, there's something valuable to that. But there is also an unseen danger that we have, nobody kind of foresaw when they started doing these. But now in the last couple decades since we have had red letter editions, I can tell you as a pastor, there is a hidden danger in them. And that's this idea that the words in red are more important than any other word in the the Bible. And someone would say, well, wait a minute, isn't the words of Jesus like supreme? That's the final say? Yes, but we do not have an autobiographical account of Jesus from Jesus. We have the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the writings and the teachings of the apostles. It is the teaching and the message of the apostles that we affirm, that we stand with. Meaning that if Luke writes something and then later on a different apostle writes something alongside of it, they are both equal teachings. So Matthew 19, biblical reasons for divorce. Adultery is a reason. 1 Corinthians 7 says that if a spouse abandons the family and will not come back, that that is a reason for divorce. And neglect and abuse in Exodus chapter 21 are given as reasons for divorce. If you, if you deny needs and necessities, food and shelter, if there is violence towards somebody, and I would include Malachi, the one everybody quotes, you know, God hates divorce. Read Malachi where it says that and tell me that there is not a direct command against physical violence, domestic violence in the home. I believe that those are all reasons for divorce. It's interesting to me, I don't know the author. I read this quote, but it's author unknown, but I didn't come up with it. It says that these sins, that's the ones listed in 1 Corinthians and in Matthew 19 and in Exodus 21 and more and more, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians, uh, Ephesians 5, he says these sins are so bad that Christians are to be thrown out of the church until they repent, according to 1 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 5. How can we ask a spouse to tolerate more than God does? What the, what the author is saying is, is, there are Christians who would say, here's a list of sins, and if somebody is in these sins and will not repent and is a threat to themselves and to others, would you allow them to come to church as if nothing's going on? And they will say, no, we would not. But they ask spouses, especially wives, to tolerate more than God says the church should tolerate. And I do not think that should be. And I know too many tragic stories of women who have been told, take back your husband, even though he's not safe. Take back your husband, even though no one wants to deal in the church, wants to deal with his sin. Take back your husband, even though your children are in danger. And let me tell you, as far as Faith on Hill goes, and as far as I'm concerned, that is horrific teaching. People get all worked up over these little minor points of doctrine and style. This is the kind of thing that I will fight and fight and fight against. 
We want people to be safe. Does that mean that if there is something going on that you immediately have to right away divorce your spouse? No, I don't think that's the case. I have two friends, both of whom are, you know, a lot of times we think this is only the dudes who are being, you know, being jerks or, or knuckleheads or whatever, but I have two friends uh, who, within a couple years of each other, their wives were unfaithful to them. And both of them had biblical reasons to divorce their wives. And both of them spent the next several years, years, attempting to pray for them, love them, see if they wouldn't return from their unfaithfulness. There's a whole book of the Bible called Hosea that's about a guy whose wife is unfaithful to him and he's trying to bring her back and love her and, and, and win her back just as God has, has had his people, Israel, be unfaithful to him and he's always trying to bring them back and win them back. And in both cases, my friends' wives, just eventually they filed for divorce. There was nothing they could do. They're both remarried and neither of them have sinned by remarrying. But just because there was sin, there was unfaithfulness, and in one case, there was, uh, I would call it emotional abuse. It doesn't mean that they immediately like, all right, I'm filing the paperwork right now. There was safety. There was separation. They made sure in the one case where there were kids involved, they made sure the kids were safe. But they weren't sinning when they filed for divorce. They weren't sinning when they remarried. What happens is this. We get these teachings in the church based off of maybe one verse and not every verse, based off of a previous cultural context, and then we haven't re-wrestled with that subject. I think sometimes we think, you know, hey, they figured it out a thousand years ago, or they figured it out a hundred years ago, or whenever. We don't need to figure that out again. And I think in every generation, we have to have an openness to re-address and re-wrestle and work through these situations in our context. That's why I think there's actually a principle here. Questions, clarifications, and implications. So the people, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they have this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And it was in Israel, but they say for any reason or every reason. Because under the Old Testament law, uh, there were some who said, you know, you can get divorced for any reason. And there were some who said, no, only if there's infidelity. These were the two kind of extremes, and then people kind of fell either on one side or the other or somewhere in the middle. So they're trying to get Jesus to pick a side. And Jesus doesn't get involved in their debate. He just goes back to the Scripture, and he says, look, the, the goal is to stay married. The goal is to stay in this relationship that God has established for people to be in and, and to love your spouse. That's the goal. But then they say, so, okay, so what about this? So Jesus says, yeah, if there's a if there's infidelity, if there's immorality, uh, by the way, he says sexual immorality, and we usually just think about cheating, but I, I again, have heard horrific stories of, of people who have been married and then found out that their spouse was a pedophile, uh, that their spouse was, there was other stuff going on. It wasn't uh, just infidelity. There were other things happening. Those are reasons to be divorced. So he gives, they ask a question, he gives clarification, and then he says, but you have to figure out the implications of that. And he gives that whole thing about eunuchs. When we as Christians individually, we as a church family, collectively wrestle through a new issue, I think this is the same process. We ask questions. Remember I said at the beginning that I read every Bible verse there was that I could find on the subject of divorce? 
I think every so often it is worthwhile to readdress and re-examine and revisit with an open heart and an open mind the whole subject. Just see what it says. I'm not trying to decide one way or the other. I just want to see what it says. And then when we know what it says, then we can seek clarification and we can do that through prayer. We can do that through further Bible reading. We can do that through engaged discussion with each other. I think sometimes, even though I said, hey, just because they came to a conclusion 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago doesn't mean we have to live by it. And yet sometimes I like to go back and see what previous generations of Christians have said. What did Christians in Europe 100 years ago think about this? What did Christians in North Africa 1,500 years ago think about this? And I want to try to get this wide counsel and clarification, and what's the Holy Spirit saying to us? God speaks to Christians. I believe that. God, will you speak to me, speak to us so that we can have understanding? But then we have to set our course. Remember this whole thing about eunuchs? What Jesus is saying is that it's not easy to follow him. It's not easy to live in the kingdom of heaven. Now, sometimes it's easier than others, but it's not right now. It's not easy when there's one side of the spectrum that wants us to go one way, another side of the spectrum that wants to go another way, and the more I read the scripture, the more I say neither of those ways is right. We're going the Jesus way. It's not easy to live a harder road when when it's easier to just say, do it this way or do it that way. But if Jesus is going that way, then we need to live like eunuchs, not literally But we need to live like eunuchs and say we're going to go the harder path. Now, I will say this. There are those who, as far as our society is concerned, that's what they're being asked to do in regards to the biblical teaching on marriage and divorce. I'm not going to tell you what you should do, but I will say that I can give you the names of people, women and men, who live as modern eunuchs And if you don't know what I mean by that, again, adam at faithonhill.com, you can ask. And they have said, Jesus is better. I was talking to a a friend and a brother who is living in celibacy. And usually when somebody talks about living in celibacy, you think it's a a homosexual who's choosing to to not act on that. He's a heterosexual. He's, He's in the prime of his life. But because of circumstances, he is living in celibacy because he says, that is the way that I will live after the kingdom of heaven. And to our society, that's like living as a eunuch. There are biblical reasons for divorce. There is a biblical imperative for grace and mercy. And we discover this and we come together in unity on this as we ask questions, as we seek clarification, and as we set our course together. This wasn't meant to be a be-all, end-all teaching on the subject. I would need weeks on that. But I hope that this gets questions and conversations going as we meet together in the small groups. And if you're watching online, we have an online small group that meets on Wednesday nights. You can email me for information on that. Whether we're meeting in the small groups, whether we're talking to our, amongst ourselves at church on Sunday mornings, whatever it is, hopefully there's questions and there's conversations going as we work through these things together. Because it's not going away. This issue isn't changing We're not going to see less divorce in our society going forward. So how do we as Christians live and move and operate in a world that just doesn't want anything to do with the things of God? I believe Jesus will show us the way. 
And I believe that no matter where we've been, Jesus can take us to where he will want us to go. God bless you. May the peace of God be prevalent in your life. May the grace of God be not only in your life, but pouring out of your life towards the world around us this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.